Hello, I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Yes, that's the name of the show, and it is also who I am, as the proud and indeed blessed spouse of Rabbi Erica Gerson. One of the many benefits of being a rabbi's husband is living in an environment full of the love of Torah, and specifically, but not only, love of the Torah as it was intended, which is as a guidebook to help us live happier, better, and more meaningful lives in the most practical and always actionable ways. And that, in fact, is the purpose of this show, to discuss with the most interesting people, hailing from a diversity of backgrounds, their favorite biblical passage with regards to how it inspires, instructs, enlightens, or directs them in the most practical way, which is how the Torah is meant to be read and indeed experienced by all of us. Today, I am delighted to be joined by my old friend, Ambassador David Friedman. Ambassador Friedman, who represented the United States in Israel for the duration of the Trump administration, has served with me on the board of United Hatzalah for many years before his service as ambassador and is now back on the board of United Hatzalah again. United Hatzalah is the crowdsourced system of emergency first response that enables victims of any pre-hospital trauma, such as car accidents, choking, to be treated within the two minutes that separate life from death. United Hatzalah now answers around 1,900 calls a day, which means that our 6,000 volunteer medics who hail from every sector of Israeli society save about 200 lives every single day. Now, I remember the first time I met David, it was in one of our initial board meetings back in David's office, probably about 15 years ago, when Ellie Beer told us that the response times for ambulances in Arab neighborhoods was way too long. What do you think, Ellie asked, about launching a United Hatzalah unit in Arab East Jerusalem composed of Arab Muslim volunteers? David immediately said it was a great idea and more so he made an additional contribution to help fund it. So David became the ambassador following a career as one of the country's top bankruptcy lawyers. He had an astonishingly successful tenure as ambassador, which included moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognizing the Golan Heights, enabling so many valuable relationships, enabling Israel and several Arab countries to sign peace accords known as the Abraham Accords. David, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. David, your chosen passage is the canonical passage of the Golden Calf. So please, uh, Tell us what happens at the Golden Calf and why is it so significant to you? Well, first, let me tell you, um, just to uh, be clear, I, I don't have a favorite passage from the uh, Torah. I, I got, I've got so many that uh, it was hard to choose one. I chose this one because my thoughts were really triggered off of the Passover Seder that we just experienced, where uh, we all know the, uh, the famous um, Song of Diana, the, the incremental steps that took us from the exodus from Egypt to the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And one of them was, If God took us to Mount Sinai, but he didn't give us the Torah, it would have been enough. What, how in the world would it make any sense for it to be enough for us to be taken to this mountain with all the, the flame and the ashes and the, and, the, and, the, and the chauffeurs blowing and not to get the Torah? How could that be enough? And um, there, the, um, the, the reference there is made to the, the reference to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. In, in Hebrew, it's Vayuchan Sham Yisrael Negadahar. The Jewish people camped out there next to the mountain, but the word uh, that's used is Vayuchan. They camped in the singular. It should have been by because it was a large 600,000 people. What did it say by Rashi says, and the answer, he says, they stood there, they stood there as one person with one heart. 
So the notion of Dayena, what was the value of coming to Har Sinai even before getting the Torah? Because it unified the Jewish people as one voice, one heart, one person. That was the trigger that got me uh, thinking about what I would, what I'd like to talk about with you. Because from that moment, within 40 days, just 40 days after the Jewish people were at Mount Sinai, where with one voice, with one heart, with one body, they accepted the Ten Commandments. They said, we will do, we will hearken. Less than 40 days later, they are worshiping a golden calf. They are violating the, the second commandment that God gave them, Sinai, just a few weeks earlier, that you shouldn't have any other uh, image of God other than me. So how did that happen? First of all, what does it mean? What does it say about the Jewish people? What does it tell us about the Jewish people today, because even even today, the Israelis are trying yet again to form a government, and uh, they are anything but the uh, the one voice, one person, one body that that they were at Mount Sinai. They there there's literally um, even as we speak, President Rivlin has observed that he doesn't think anybody is in a position to form a government yet again. So we are a divided nation, and um, we we've we've lost that unity, uh, hopefully temporarily, from Mount Sinai. And we went and we, uh, we observed the golden calf. You know, when I, I studied in yeshiva when I was growing up, and then I went to Columbia, and I tried to study all of the biblical stories from a secular perspective. And one of the things I remember from my professor there was he said, you know what? You would think that the Bible was written by anti-Semites because it exposes the Jewish people in all their warts. I mean, there is no attempt. It's not like Greek mythology, Roman mythology. Our warts are exposed, you know, in full, full display. From Adam and Eve on through Moses, all the way through. So, you know, Mark, how did we get from this singular moment of revelation, uh, never repeated in the annals of human history, this revelation at Mount Sinai, in less than 40 days, we're violating the Ten Commandments, we are worshiping a golden calf, and we're still around today. You know, I mean, you would think that uh, any people that uh, heard the word of God directly, and then proceeded to violate that word in just you know a matter of weeks. Would, wouldn't belong for this planet, let alone be you know the only real ancient people that continues to this day to be um, observing um, their religious observances in the same language. In many cases, the same text. Uh, many cases, certainly in the same place, at least where in, in Jerusalem that they did two thousand years ago. So, so how do we how do we reconcile this almost absurd rejection of God's will in such a short period of time with the fact that we're still here and and we're still um, uh, we're still thriving? So that's the passage I really wanted to focus on, and it really focuses on two different uh, passages from the Book of Exodus. They both are. Uh, after the sin of the uh, of the golden calf. So in, in Exodus 33, verse 5, God says the following. I'll just say it in Hebrew, then I'll translate. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, Amor el Bnei Yisrael. God says to Moses, tell the people of Israel, Atem am Orif, you are a stiff-necked people. In just one minute, I will enter your midst and I will destroy you. God is saying, tell Moses, God is saying to Moses, tell these people of yours that they are, that they are stiff-necked. Now, he is using that word pejoratively. You know, he is saying they are a stiff-necked people. They are uh, incorrigible. They are capable of, uh, of terrible things. And because of that, I'm just about this close from entering their midst and destroying the whole lot of them. And this is God's response to the people worshiping the golden calf. Yes, exactly. Now we fast forward a little bit. Moses prays for the uh, to save the people. He does it very eloquently in a number of different ways. He then uh, returns up to the uh, to Mount Sinai. He carves out a second set of tablets. He brings them down 
and he says to God at that point, God, uh, we welcome you into our midst. Because they are a stiff-necked people, we want you to come to us to forgive us, to forgive our sins, to forgive our transgressions, uh, and to make us uh, and to give us the legacy uh, of being your people. So wow! So normally, you know, I, I was a lawyer for many years. Normally, when the judge says, you know, uh, I'm going to rule against you because of X, Y, and Z, you don't go and make the argument, well, judge, because of X, Y, and Z, I'd like you to find for my client, right? And that's exactly what's happening here, right? God is saying, because there were stiff-necked people, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses is saying, because there were stiff-necked people, I want you to forgive them. So what's happening here? So it's uh, it, this, this was actually an idea that that I came up with personally, although I then found, when I told it to somebody, they found a very kind of esoteric uh, biblical commentary that actually says the same thing. So I'm not I'm not alone in this view. Um, here, here's here's the uh, here's how you reconcile the two comments. God is saying to Moses, "These are stiff-necked people. They are very difficult people. You probably know this already on your own. They are very difficult people." Moses says, "Yes, they are very difficult people. They're incredibly stubborn." They're stiff-necked. What kind of people do you want to carry this over for the next 25, 30 generations? Mm-hmm. Who's going to do it if not a stiff-necked people? Sure. They got all kinds of problems. I mean, they, they're capable of some of the, um, the, the, the worst acts of, uh, of, 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 of lack of faith, lack of belief. Uh, and, uh, and look, we know. We know through the entire Torah. We know how many times the, the children of Israel uh, disappointed Moses. When Moses... Uh, died, you know, on his on his deathbed, and he spoke out about the Jewish people. Uh, he wasn't flattering. He didn't say, you know, you've been fantastic. You know, you're the love of my life. He 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 was incredibly critical. He said to them, his words were, "Mamrim You've been rebelling against God since the day I met you. Um, so, um, but Moses uses exactly that characteristic as the basis to plead for the Jewish people because he he, he wants God to recognize, look. You know, we can find a much nicer group. We can find a much more amiable, much more, but they're not the ones who are going to carry this Torah into, mm. into, into eternity because it takes a stiff-necked people. You need to be incredibly stubborn. You need to be loyal. You need to be able to rigidly adhere to this and to carry it with you. Um, and God, if you want your Torah to last, if you want it to survive, you're going to have to take the good with the bad. The bad's going to be there. They're stiff-necked in a bad way, but the good is that they will be stiff-necked in a very good way. And boy, was that true. I mean, you know, to carry the the Torah through through so many challenges, you know, Inquisition, Crusades, you know, pogroms, Holocaust, the creation of the of the state of Israel, wars, battles for the last two thousand years, and here we are today. What did we What do we do today? You can walk walk out of my apartment. You can go straight to the Western Wall. You can pray in the same language at the same place, the same texts that the Jewish people were praying in 2000 years ago. You have to be pretty stiff-necked in order to achieve that. Well, that's it's it's certainly certainly a miracle. Now, is this the perhaps the original example of somebody in this case Moses uh telling us and perhaps also telling God that our greatest weakness can also be our greatest strength? Yeah, I think he's telling God exactly that. I think he's trying to I think what, what Moses is saying here is that, is he's saying to God that you are perfect, but you did not create a perfect people. You created them with, with lots of uh, important values and, and talents and lots of weaknesses. And um, if you're going to destroy them every time they are weak or they show weaknesses, 
well, there aren't going to be Jewish people out there to, to carry on your Torah. If you accept those flaws as part of the overall package, then the Torah will continue. And maybe it's also Moses issuing somewhat of a prayer to God saying, help us to turn those flaws into strengths. In other words, don't get rid of the bad characteristic because it's not necessarily a bad characteristic. It can be our greatest strength. And but for that stiff neckedness, you and I aren't talking today. Exactly. I agree. Absolutely. And I think that's I think that's an important message. And look, you know, we see that every day. You know, when I was uh, I was ambassador for four years, I dealt with uh, with lots and lots of conflicts in, internal to the Jewish people and between uh, the Jewish people with the state of Israel and others. And, um, you know, it's a mixed bag. I mean, it's it's frustrating to see uh, the Jewish community uh, sometimes divided. It's frustrating to see uh, Israel's political system uh, sometimes broken. But notwithstanding all the um, all the conflicts, there is a fundamental uh, loyalty that the Jewish people have to continue, uh, you know, their glorious history. And, um, uh, and and you need it. You need a certain type of collect in order to achieve that. Now, when when you were ambassador, or or even before, when you were uh, a bankruptcy lawyer, uh, can you think of examples where you were able to see someone's weakness, and then in the moment, perhaps learning from Moses? this can actually be your strength and to see that as the way to resolve the conflict? Well, look, you know, it, it, it happens often in, uh, you know, uh, bankruptcy has a lot of, uh, of pathos to it because there's, um, there's failure, right? Somebody, somebody failed for a company to go bankrupt. There's also opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, right. There's also greed. There's also ego. So it, it most often comes, out, comes up in the question of, you know, of, um, whether it's their ego or their sense of their self or, you know, pe people will fight to, to preserve their reputation because it matters to them. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, you, you, you say to someone, look, take that same passion you have for yourself and just, just, you know, expand the lens a little bit, just open up the aperture a little bit and just see, you know, it's not just you, you know, if, if you can, if you can get beyond yourself, um, if you can do something above your own personal needs, you're going to have much more credibility. People will take you much more seriously if they see in you something which is purer and more meaningful than just yourself. So basically, and the person in that case wants to enhance their reputation, the way to do it is not to directly enhance your reputation, but to do something for somebody else. And by doing that, you'll get what you wanted to begin with. Yeah, look, you know, you learn in business. I'm sure you you know this as well as me. You, learn, you know, the first thing you need to understand when you're negotiating with someone is to understand the financial incentives. You know, what, what, what do people want? What do they need? What are they going to fight for? What can they give up? For example, someone, a CEO of a company says, I'm willing to take, you know, a meaningful pay cut if I can preserve jobs, right? Doesn't happen all the time. We, we would come across companies where the CEO would, you know, pound on a pound and say, you know, I'm the most important guy in the company. And if you, if I take a pay cut, then, you know, it's not fair because you're penalizing the most valuable guy. You know, that guy usually ends up at a bad outcome. Because, you know, you know, that's not really a message that resonates with most people. Um, somebody gets up and says, you know what, I think I'm going to succeed in the long run, but I need some time. I'm going to um, I'm going to work for a dollar a year for the next couple of years and let everybody else prosper. And then if uh, if we succeed, then, you know, then you'll pay me five, six times what what I might have made otherwise. People will listen to that. People will, 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 re will respond when someone's willing to uh, to sacrifice for others. And ultimately, they, they actually benefit themselves as well. So how did you take all that you learned about uh, human incentives, human conduct, what you learned from the Bible, what you brought into your bankruptcy law practice? How did you take these lessons from both your Jewish training and from your professional experience into your ambassadorship? 
And, and I think the most important thing was a commitment to be proud of, uh, of being Jewish. There's a tendency uh, among Jews, especially in government, to want to show that they can be um, receptive and considerate of everybody else but themselves. They think it's a value to d depreciate or to, or to subordinate the interests uh, of the Jewish people because, you know, look, look how great I am. Look how much I'm virtue signaling. I'm Jewish, but I'm not caring about the Jewish people. To me, I, w I wanted to to end that practice, hopefully for for the future as well, because I thought it was very it was very unnecessary. I think you know there's an expression: charity begins at home. You have to be comfortable in your own skin and be proud of who you are. Then, of course, you reach out to everybody else. Of course, you uh, you can't be uh, uh, blindly following your own interests. Just the opposite. But as somebody who's comfortable in their own heritage and is proud of their own heritage, it puts you in a in a better position to then advance the interests of others. One of the things I I, I learned from dealing with with, with many others in the Arab world, um, they don't really respect people who don't respect themselves. You know, if, if, if you respect your own religion and you consider it valuable uh, and you consider it important, again, recognizing that there's other religions and everybody has to have equal rights, but, but if you respect yourself, you will be respected by others. If you're constantly um, you know, apologizing for yourself or diminishing yourself or subordinating yourself because you think that that's going to be uh, rewarded it actually has just the opposite effect. Very interesting. So you were ambassador for four years. Now you've been um, former ambassador for four months. Mm -hmm. Just about. What's it like being the former ambassador? You were a legendary ambassador. I mean, th the world over. And now it's been four months and uh, you're still in the capital city of Jerusalem, where which you made the capital, but uh, you no longer have the infrastructure. You no longer have the office. What's the experience of an ex-ambassador? It's not easy. Uh, look, I've I've I found you know lots of things to do. I've got some uh, some nonprofit work that I'm very excited about. I uh, I'm, I'm done with the first draft of the book, which I hope will be out in another uh, I don't know whenever the publisher decides to put it out, but hopefully soon. Um, I'm producing a documentary on the Abraham Accords, which I'm looking forward to. But what's hard about it is just losing the influence. Now, uh, on the one hand, I think the Biden administration's entitled to they were elected. It's their, it's their government. They have the right to run it as they see fit, just as we have the right to run it as we see fit. We took lots of, uh, we took lots of uh, pellets along the way. They'll take lots of pellets along the way. But it's hard sometimes for me to hold back, you know, when I, when I think it's heading in the wrong direction. So I've been kind of biting my tongue a lot. Uh, today, I wasn't so good at it. I, I put out a tweet very critical about the... Uh, where I think they're heading with the uh, with the uh, Iran nuclear deal, but um, but I'm, I doubt I'm the only one. Um, but you know, it's it's hard when you're that close to um, to have to having such a strong influence on U.S. policy, and in one narrow area, admittedly, just the U.S. Israel area. But when you're so uh, involved in uh, in formulating that policy, the new government comes in, and as is their right, they begin to unravel some of that stuff. It's not easy. But you know you have to you have to handle it in a in an appropriate and dignified way, and uh, and and ultimately, look, I want I want America to succeed regardless of who's in the White House. So, how often, in your experience as ambassador or uh, as a participant and observer of Israeli diplomacy, either internal or external, did inspiration from the Bible come up? Did they say, you know, th this I'm inspired to do this because of Abraham, or I'm reminded of how I should approach the situation because of something Rebecca said, or I am drawing sustenance from the experience of Joseph. How prevalent is the Bible in that sense? To me, it's it's a daily process. I am 
looking at the Bible for inspiration every single day. I'll give you a sort of a basic example, the fundamental example. Maybe the greatest document of the last 2,000 years is the Declaration of Independence. Founding fathers determined that all uh, U.S. citizens have unalienable rights endowed by our creator. You know, they, they you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. They, they didn't say those rights are, are a good idea. They didn't say they're written in the Federalist Papers or in the work of John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, Code of Hammurabi. They say they were endowed by our creator. How did they know that? Well, they read, they read the Bible. And, and from where was the word of our creator issued? Isaiah tells us, he says, The word of God came from Jerusalem. So, you know, I'm sitting in my office in Jerusalem every day and I'm saying, you know, the, the foundational principles of America came right from this small little place here where the prophets preached, where the, you know, the kings ruled, where, you know, Jewish life uh, originated. That, that's who we are as Americans as well. Those, those principles are enduring. And I, and I found that the, the more untethered we, we become from those principles, the, the more we're at risk as a nation in America as well as, as in Israel. And so um, I thought about this every day. I mean, to me, the Bible uh, resonates with me constantly. It's, it's enormous lessons about what leaders should do, about what they shouldn't do. Again, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Bible is not shy about exposing all the failings of Jewish leaders. So you, you can tell exactly what they did right and, and where they went wrong. And so as, uh, as, as one who had the privilege of being a leader for four years, I, I studied it very carefully. Well, David, thank you for such an interesting conversation on, uh, on the, the golden calf and how it influenced your experience as ambassador. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 uh, book called Anti-Memoir. He says in the book, uh, I just uh, ran into a man with whom I served in the war, and the man had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, well, I've learned two things. He said, one, everybody is much less happy than he seems, and two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So David, in your four years as ambassador, what are one or two things that you've learned about mankind? Look, I, I think that uh, I've lived in Israel for four years. It's a different place than living in America, uh, the 58 years that preceded it. I think Israelis really are happy. And I, I think they're happy for, I'm not, and I think Americans may, I'm not suggesting Americans aren't, but I think Israelis are happy for one fundamental reason. I think they, they have a meaningful life by living in Israel, by being part of the one and only Jewish state and by being part of a continuum of 4,000 years, I think they have something that they're living for, which is beyond themselves, beyond their daily grind of you know work and getting the kids off to school. And I think happy people are people who find something bigger than themselves to care about. And that's, I think, spe special about Israel. Now, look, it's there are lots of people in America who have meaningful lives as well. But as a, as a, as a people, I think the Israelis, just by, just by virtue of the fact that they are Israeli and living here, I think they have found some, some meaning, which I think carries uh, forward in, in, in a happy way. Having said that, the human uh, condition is uh, fragile and human beings are flawed. And I've yet to meet a single one uh, who's not. Uh, I think it's important to uh, steady yourself for disappointment 
when you uh, when you when you're asking people for anything because um, uh, self-interest is is an extremely uh, powerful uh, influence. Ego uh, is an incredibly important influence, and so just understand people uh, have to uh, get around some of these issues. And, and, and if you always expect the best of people, you will be disappointed. But people can absolutely rise to the occasion, do things bigger than themselves, and as we've Israel certainly a, a great example, uh, do extraordinary things. Wow. Well, uh, David, uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom uh, and your experience uh, with us uh, today on The Rabbi's Husband. And uh, thank you for your uh, service to the American people uh, in the promised land. Well, thanks, Mark. It's great to see you. And uh, I love what you're doing. I'll, I'm going to become a uh, much more religious follower of your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. That'll, that'll, be, that'll be such an honor. I look forward to discussing it with you. So uh, thank you so much, David. Thanks, Mark. Be well. Bye-bye. Wow. Well, uh, what wisdom from uh, Ambassador Friedman. And uh, it just shows us the ever-generative gift of this Torah text where Moses is instructing God this stiff-neckedness that is so discouraging you about the people, discouraging you almost to the point of wanting to eliminate them, God. Moses is saying to God, this is what is going to sustain the Jewish people and to make them your faithful servants for all time, no matter what happens. And here we are, what great wisdom from the ambassador. Uh, I have to uh, include that insight in the, the next edition of The Telling because it's such a perfect example of this relationship between Moses and God and how this two-way relationship helps to educate us and to understand who we are and who we can be. Well, thank you all for listening and for uh, sharing this great uh, moment with uh, Ambassador Friedman with me and uh, next year in Graceland. I'm Mark Gerson, and this has been The Rabbi's Husband, and thank you for listening. Please go to Apple, to Spotify, to wherever you receive podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. I can be found at therabbishusband.com or at The Rabbi's Husband on Facebook or Instagram, and I would love to hear from you, so please email me at mark at therabbishusband.com. This podcast is part of the Joshua Network. You can find out more about the Joshua Network at thejoshuanetwork.com. Thank you for listening.